leadership, democracy, and genocide. Uh, we do these series in the fall and the spring, and we're very honored to be able to uh, welcome you here on such a cool, can you believe the weather? We won't take offense if you fan yourselves or if you have to grab something cool to drink. We will have things out in the hallway afterwards. But I'm Pamela Gates, and I'm the Dean of the College of Humanities, Social and Behavioral Sciences, and home to this endowed speaker series. Um, thank you. Matt Abel is here, member of the family. And I really appreciate you being here. I think you're in for a delightful, hmm, that's my right word, but how about an interesting um, speech tonight. And I'm really pleased to invite Dr. Eric Johnson up, who will do our introduction. Thank you. people 
And people estimate that at a low estimate, maybe 500,000 people were killed in this mass genocide, and the higher estimate goes to 1.5 to 1.6 million. Um, Professor Melson will tell you what the more correct figure is. Professor Melson, besides having eluded death um, in the Nazi Holocaust, you know, came to the United States eventually. I don't know all the circumstances of it. I've had a chance to speak with him some today, and I was very fortunate for that. But he has gone on to, you know, think about the subject for most of his life after receiving his PhD at MIT, the same place my father got his PhD, so I'm very happy to um, see that. Although my father was a physicist and he's been a professor of political science at um, Purdue University and various other universities. Officially emeritus, he's still been very active as an emeritus professor, as I see, having been at very uh, prestigious places. Um, like Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, where next to where my father thought it was for tech for many years, um, and where I was brought up in Shrewsbury, the next town over, and went to high school. Yeah, he's at the Strasser Center for Holocaust Studies, which is the first and I think only one in the United States that's really dedicated to the study of the Holocaust. Um, and it was a distinguished post to be held, that he held. He's held other distinguished posts at the Hebrew University and other places around the world. Uh, he's written many books written many articles in prestigious and important magazines. He's won several book awards. He's won all kinds of prizes. He's been the recognized and been made the president of the International Association for Genocide Scholars between 2003 and 2005. And uh, he certainly knows a lot about his subjects. One last little word here, and that is that it's interesting to me to be able to be comparing the Holocaust here, as I remember trying to bend my brain around this, this issue for many years, as amongst many Holocaust scholars, as Professor Nelson will know better than I, there, was, uh, there were many who at first thought it was not something that could be compared, that the Holocaust is something that was unique, it was something that was only to be thought of by itself. Somehow to put it in a comparative perspective would be perhaps to try to explain it away. Well, it depends upon what your goals are. It's certainly not Professor Nelson's goal. Sociologists have told me, where I've worked in Germany and other places, that the comparison is the Königsweg in the sociology, that it's the king's pathway is what comparison is. Through comparison, we understand things. So I'm sure tonight I will learn a lot as Professor Nelson will be some things or something he's even experienced in part with the Armenian genocide, which still today is under serious dispute as a very significant political issue. But I'll let him tell you about it more if you wish. Thank you very much, and greetings, Professor Nelson.
Mr. Abel, thank you very much for having your family sponsor this series. Without you, none of us would be here. Without your mom, too, right, who is so uh, instrumental. Uh, Provost Shapiro, um, Professor Sterling Johnson, in whose class I spoke today. Very interesting class. Uh, Professor Tim Hall, uh, Professor Laura McConnell, with whom we had dinner last night. Um, Jessica Gardner-Rose, who I just met. Um, Mr. Ed Peters. Um, Dave Nichols, who did an interview, radio interview with me uh, this morning. Very skillful interview. Uh, Sarah Buckley, who, I don't know if she's here, but two years ago, we were on the phone together when I was in Indianapolis airport, and I was supposed to come up here two years ago, and there was a windstorm in Indianapolis, and the planes wouldn't fly, and I couldn't come. And I don't know, some of you were probably here waiting and wondering what, what happened to this guy. He's lost in the wilds of Indiana. Uh, and finally, I'd like to thank very much uh, uh, Ray Barrett, who has really been wonderful in, in, in putting things together and, and, and helping us to get here and, and, and thrive. The title of my talk is The Armenian Genocide and the Holocaust is viewed through the extraordinary experiences of two survivors who outwitted their killers. In my talk, I'm going to juxtapose and discuss two instances of mass murder from the, me from the memoirs of two survivors of genocide, Bishop Grigoris Belekin, who lived through the Armenian Genocide of 1915-18, and my father, Willie Mendelssohn, who survived the Holocaust of my mother and me. I hope that by telling the particular stories of two people, from two distinct instances, I might be able to shed some light on the general problem of genocide. Bishop Malakin's memoir, Armenian Golgotha, was published by Alfred Knopp in 2009, while my father's story appears in my book, False Papers, Survival and Deception of the Holocaust, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2000. My talk will interpolate some of the history of the two genocides and I will conclude by asking two questions. What do the two stories illustrate about the motives of the killers and the apparent success in outwitting them of the two survivors? Other questions we can leave to the discussion following the lecture. Let me turn to the story of Bishop Grigoris Belekin. On April 24, 1915, the date marks the commemoration of the Armenian Genocide, Bishop Grigoris Belekin, a high-ranking Armenian priest, was among the 250 Armenian religious, political, 
and cultural leaders were arrested in Constantinople and sent 200 miles east to await their fate. While most of his companions were killed or died, the Lakin survived until the end of the war in 1918, and that's when he started to write Armenian Golgotha. This is an astonishing memoir and meditation on his survival and on the course of a mass murder that destroyed more than a million Armenians, half of the Armenian population of the Ottoman Empire in the period 1915 to 1918. In his first-hand testimony from a terrible time by a knowledgeable, historically informed witness who was intent not only to recall his experiences, but to leave a documentary record behind. When he was 38, Grigoris Belakin had studied at German universities and spoke fluent German before he returned to Constantinople in September 1914, on the eve of the First World War. His command of German not only saved his life when later he went into hiding, but it also gave him a perspective on the role of Germany, Turkey's, al Turkey's ally, during the genocide. He was also well connected to the establishment of the Armenian Apostolic Church and a well-known figure in Armenian affairs. He arrived in Constantinople two months before Turkey joined Germany and the Central Powers against the Entente, the Entente meaning the French, the Russians, the British, and later the United States, and left in 1919 as part of the Armenian delegation to the Versailles Peace Conference. In the intervening five years, he experienced the Armenian genocide. When he lived in Berlin, he had been alarmed by the ferocity of German nationalism and the millenarian expectations aroused by the coming of the war. He discovered similar emotions ranging among, uh, ranging among Turks as well as Armenians when he returned to Constantinople. He believed that a rapid, rabid form of Turkish nationalism and pan-Turkism motivated the Committee of Union and Progress, which seized the opportunity of the war to destroy the Armenians and to transform Turkey into a homogeneous Muslim and Turkic state. He was also critical of the role of the German military and foreign office, which he accused of collaborating in the destruction of the Armenians. Uh, let me interpolate uh, some of the history of the Ottoman Empire and, and the problem of the Armenians. Uh, the Ottomans seized what is now Anatolia, Turkey, uh, in the 15th century, and ruled it uh, till till uh, till 19 ruled the empire till till uh, 1918 till, till the end of the First World War. Uh, the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire was one of the great empires, extended all the way from from the Balkans in Europe throughout the Middle East, to Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, and, and so on. Uh, it was organized on the principle of religion, not on the principle of ter territory. Uh, the peoples of the empire were divided into Muslims, Armenians, Jews, Catholics, Protestants, and others. And, and some of the others were then uh, were pulled into the Armenian, what was known as the Armenian millet. And these millets, or, or religious communities, 
were headed by religious um, leaders, the chief rabbi, the, the uh, uh, head of the Armenian church, head of the Catholic church, Protestant church, and so on. And of course the Sultan Caliph, who is the head of the Muslim, Muslim community. And for centuries, although the, the Ottoman Empire was an expansive military organization, internally uh, it, it did not persecute its minorities. Things changed beginning in the 19th century when more and more of the minorities on the, on the, on the periphery of the empire, especially in the Balkans, Greece, revolted against the empire. Uh, they had been motivated by nationalism and wanted self-determination to create countries of their own. At the same time, the, the empire fell far behind Europe in terms of modernization and industrialization, and therefore in terms of military ability. And the Turkish armies began to lose battles to the Russians, for example. So the empire began to shrink and began to feel uh, on the verge of collapse. And it was in this context that minorities began to be viewed by the leadership of, of, uh, of the state uh, with increasing uh, suspicion. And especially the Armenians were viewed with suspicion because their location was right on the border, the center of their of, of the population was right on the border with Russia. And, Ru and Russia, the Russian Empire, was the traditional enemy of the Turks. There were already, in the 19th century, in 1894 to 96, major massacres of Armenians that took place under then the Sultan Abdul Hamid. Estimate is anywhere between 100,000 to 300,000 people were killed in these, in, in these massacres. But these massacres came to an end in 1896. Uh, and the religious establishment reestablished the millet system with the Armenians as being part, part of the Ottoman Empire. In 1908, there was a coup headed by the Young Turks, military officers and some intellectuals who had actually lived in Europe, against the Sultan. And the coup was not that he was a, a repressive figure. The coup was because he was an ineffective figure. Because the, these military officers felt that the Armenians were, that, that the Turks were falling further behind Europe and the minorities were rising and threatening the unity of, uh, of the empire. And at first, when the Young Turks took power, they did not establish a dictatorship. They did not establish an authoritarian government. They weren't quite sure what to do. They knew they wanted to do away with, with the Sultanate. They experimented, in fact, first with a kind of liberal democracy, kind of parliamentary democracy, modeling themselves after Britain, with the Sultan as a kind of a, a figurehead monarch. And while they were trying these experiments between 1908 and 1912, Balkan Wars broke out. And these were a disaster for the Young Turks. Far from strengthening Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, 
more territory, more territory was lost under the Young Turks than even under the Sultan. More minorities rebelled. And at this point, a, they formed a political party called the Committee of Union and Progress, which seized power in Constant, Constantinople or Istanbul. And it came to power with a very different conception of the future of Turkey that the first wave of young Turks had. They were driven by a xenophobic kind of Turkish nationalism. They were not interested anymore in creating a multi, uh, a, a, a pluralist Ottoman system with multi, multi, multiple religions, multi, multiple ethnicities. They wanted to create a homogeneous Turkic and Muslim state. And in that context, the Armenians living on the, in the Eastern territories were now viewed with even greater suspicion than they had before. This is before the First World War. And in August 1914, the First World War breaks out. The, the young Turks decide to join Germany in, in, uh, in, in their alliance, mainly because they were anti-Russian and the Germans were anti-Russian. And it's in the context of that war that they decided in order to, in their mind, to preserve the integrity of Turkey, to create a homogeneous Turkic nation, they would expel the Armenians from the eastern areas of Turkey, abutting Russia. And so they did. First, what they did was they demobilized Armenians who had been in the Ottoman troops. They demobilized them, killed many of them, and turned the others who survived into laborers, mule, mule, essentially mules for the army. The women and children who were left behind in the various villages in, uh, in Armenia were then driven out in caravans out to, to the east, to the southeast in Syria. When they were driven out, essentially, they were told, you have two days to leave, and you're going to go to Syria. People packed their bags, whatever they had, grabbed their kids, grabbed their grandmother and grandfather, and started to walk. And they were accompanied by Turkish troops. And as they began to walk, they began to starve. And as they began to starve, they began to die. And the question came up, well, what about what should be done about these dying Armenians? This was a question asked by governors, by Turkish governors along the route. And the answer that came back from Constantinople, Istanbul, was let them die. And so they did. Uh, up to a million people died in this, what I would call the first modern genocide of the 20th century. Um, so this is, this is the background to uh, Bishop Alekin's experience. He was a fervent Armenian patriot, but he could also be quite critical of his own people's attitudes on the, on the eve of the war. 
Thus, upon returning from Germany, he found Armenian enthusiasm for the coming war and what it might mean for an independent Armenia both, both alarming and naive. That is, the Turks were not altogether wrong in thinking the Arme some Armenians had notions of self-determination. They did. He feared that, that these notions of self-determination would play into the xenophobia of the Turks. Referring to the massacres of 1894-96 under the earlier Abdul Hamid, he said, the bloody experiences of the last 30 years had not made the Armenians any more prudent. In a later passage, he said, in this way, we provoked the Turks, who had for a long time been looking for an excuse to annihilate the entire Armenian population of Turkey. Uh, he didn't realize when he wrote this in 1918 that this notion of provocation what has been to this day the argument that the Turkish government has given for the Armenian massacres. There was no genocide. The Armenians provoked us. They wanted an independent state. Had we had an independent state of Armenia, Turkey would perish. And that's why we had to, we had to do away with them. That has been the Turkish position to this moment. After spending 10 months in prison, uh, uh, in February 1916, Balakin was made to join a forced march further east on their way to Syria. It was during this deportation that he documented his extraordinary conversation amounting to a prolonged interview over many days with Captain Shukri, a 65-year-old commander who was in charge of the police soldiers or gendarmes uh, guarding uh, the deportees. <coughs> Because of his high status, Belakin was allowed to ride a horse uh, on a horseback next to Shukri, who was quite open, unapologetic, even proud about his participation in a deportation mass murder. That is, as the caravan is going on its way east to Syria, Belakin is riding next to the captain who's guarding these, these, uh, this, uh, these deportees. And they're, and, they're, and they're talking. They're discussing uh, what's happening and why are you doing this and so on. This conversation interview between a victim and a perpetrator was unique in the annals of the Armenian genocide and clarifies the process of destruction as well as the attitudes of, quote, the ordinary men who both killed and supervised the killing. In this connection, Belagin tells Shukri's account of the destruction of the Armenian women of Yozgat. Yozgat was a town on the way. Not knowing that their husbands and other male relatives had already been killed, the women were told to bring their children and their, and, and their valuables because they would be deported to Syria. Captain Shukri headed a detachment of, 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 of police that guarded the caravan of deportees. But the women and their children were not destined uh, for Syria. On orders for his superiors, uh, on orders from his superiors in Yozgat, the captain led the women and their children to an isolated valley, where they were first stripped of their possessions and then massacred by villagers from the surrounding hills. Their va valuable valuables were then shipped 
to the authorities in town with Captain Shukri getting his cut. This is what Captain Shukri told Blakin. Hearing this account, Blakin could not contain himself and asked the good, good captain how he, a believing Muslim, could participate in the massacre of innocent women and children. Shukri explained his motivations in religious and political terms. The Sheikh al Islam, the highest Sunni religious authority in Turkey, had issued a fatwa and order to annihilate the Armenians as traitors of our state, and the Caliph, in turn, had ordered its execution. And I, as a military officer, carried out the order of my king. Killing people during war, after all, is not considered a crime, now is it? Lakin reports, I fell silent because there was nothing I could say in reply to an execution who had likened the merciless massacre of unarmed, defenseless women and infants to killing people in war. In total, he was responsible for the murder of some 42,000 innocent people. Belaken suggests the leaders of the Committee of, Committee of Union and Progress, two of the more famous ones were Talat and Enver, may have been impelled by Turkish nationalism. But the ordinary men and women followers and executioners of the genocide were just as likely to respond to religious assertion and legitimation. Belaken could not know in 1916 following orders in wartime would be a recurring rationalization by the perpetrators of genocides, including the Holocaust, the Cambodian genocide, and lately Rwanda. Same excuses. Having realized the deportation meant certain death, on April 2nd, 1916, Belaken joined two other Armenian men and escaped. He shaved his beard and changed his clothes and began his life as a fugitive from Turkish authorities. His successful flight lasted until the end of the war. During his extraordinary odyssey, he demonstrated exceptional courage and ingenuity at various times impersonating a German railroad, railroad worker, before he spoke fluent German, Herr Bernstein, a German Jew, a German engineer, a railway administrator, a German soldier, and a Greek vineyard worker. This comment on his transformation tells us much about his boldness and zestful life. My transformation had made me a new man, bold and fearless. Clothing can change one's disposition and spiritual power in ways I had not realized. A peace-loving and meek servant of the church had abruptly been transformed into a young adventurer ready to employ all of his physical, intellectual, and moral energies to save his life, but any, mis any misjudgment would result in death. Although the memoir records a dark and brutal period which brought Belakin to moments of despair, he did not shut his eyes to human kindness and courage. His story is punctuated by episodes of Muslim Turks rescuing Armenians, of endangered Armenians uh, 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 risking their lives to save him and other victims of decent Germans, appalled by their country's policies, which were supporting the, the Turks at the time, willing to extend him a hand. During the most wrenching moments of his flight, he was sustained by his faith 
in a compassionate Christian God and in the patriotic hope that after the ordeal, Armenia would rise as a free and independent state. It was also sustained by a personal optimism, self-confidence, and zest for adventure that cannot easily be taught and duplicated. Some 26 years later, Willard Mendelssohn, my father, my mother Nina, and I, I was known as Bokuslov then, or Bobby, started our own flight and impersonation in order to survive another genocide. So let me turn to that example. September 1st, 1939. As many of you know, the Soviets attacked Poland from the east. The Germans attacked Poland from the west. The Soviets attacked actually in November of, of, of 1939. Although we, my family, my mother, my father, and I had come from Warsaw, the capital of Poland, we happened to be visiting my grandfather, my father's father, in southern, southeastern Poland, now Ukraine, in a town called Stanislavov, in, in former Galicia. And so by sheer bad luck, or maybe in, in this case good luck, we were under the Soviets rather than the Germans. It was bad enough to be under the Soviets. My grandfather was a manufacturer in a smallish town. And this, when the Soviets came, he was arrested because he was a capitalist and he was badly treated in prison. Meanwhile, my, my parents were, were robbed of all their goods and had to survive as the best they could. But as bad as things were, uh, this was still not genocide, although the Soviets deported uh, thousands of people, both Poles and Jews, to, uh, to the Gulag. Uh, we didn't know then that things would get much worse. Then, as you may know, uh, the Germans attacked the Soviets June 21st, 1941. And a few months later, the uh, German army arrived in Stanislav. My father, who had studied in Germany, in fact, he was a German culturally. He grew up in a German-speaking home. He had studied in Vienna. He had studied in Berlin. He was, he was a businessman. He was a sharp guy. Uh, he had a choice of whether to escape with the Russians towards Russia or stay and wait for the Germans. And he decided to stay and wait for the Germans. Because, he, as he said earlier in the interview, I knew the Germans. I am German. And I felt comfortable and we would do fine. Well, then he said, I couldn't have been further wrong, further from the truth. Because 
German army came in, in July. By September, there was an order given to the Jewish community that it had to appear in the center of town, that the Jews in the center of town were going to be relocated in another part of, part of Poland. And they should bring their bags, and they should bring their children, and so on. And people had no reason not to obey the occupying power, so they did. And they went to the place of assembly in the center of town. There were trucks waiting for them. The trucks picked them up, took them to the edge of town. Uh, people were, were, were uh, uh, pushed off the trucks. There had been ditches dug earlier by peasants from the surrounding countryside, and people were machine gunned to death. Um, some 10,000 people were machine gunned to death that day. My parents did not go then to, to, that, to that assembly, did not go to the massacre. And again, you know, there are certain unexplainable reasons why people do the things they do. My mother, the night before, had had a dream. And in the dream, she had seen her father say to her, do not go, do not go. That's what she told me. And she woke up early that morning, and she said to my father, we can't go to that assembly. I don't know what's going to happen, but I have a terrible feeling something terrible is going to happen. And she took, they took me in their arms. I was uh, 1941, I was, I was born in 1937, so I must have been four. Uh, and they walked to a Catholic family that were friends of theirs, who hid them. And we and, and, and put them up in their in their basement. And it was while they were we were in their basement of that family, the other Jews were being massacred. So after the massacre, we didn't know what to do. We then we couldn't go back to where we were. We decided we would go and try to stay with my governess, whose name was Hella. And she readily agreed, and we stayed with Hella. But uh, how long can you stay with, with this person who herself is now under suspicion for hiding uh, strangers, middle, middle class strangers, and my father is fairly well known in the community anyway. So they, ha they had to do something. To make a long story short, I don't want to tell you the whole story of this, of this memoir, my mother was able to get false papers of identity through the local church. It happened, it so happened that the false papers that we got of Polish Catholics were not just of any Polish Catholics, but of a family called Zamoyski. And it turns out that Zamoyskis, not specifically that brand, that branch of the family, the Zamoyskis are a well-known aristocratic noble family in Poland. So we had these papers, and with these papers we made our way to Krakow, which was a much larger city to the west of our town, Stanislaw. And there my father took over. He, was, he had been a businessman. He knew uh, German perfectly well. In fact, he spoke G Polish with a German accent. And he got in touch with a Herr Bonneberger, 
who was a German businessman, a war profiteer, working out of Warsaw. When you think about the Holocaust, you, when you usually think about the Holocaust, you think of the Wehrmacht, you think of the army, German army invading Poland or Czechoslovakia or wherever it might be, you think of the SS, you think of the Gestapo, uh, the people who came after them, the, the, the killers. But there was also an economic dimension to the occupation. Behind the army, behind the killers, came businessmen trying to make a living, trying to make a buck out of this conquest. I don't know how many of you have seen Schindler's List, but Schindler was one of these guys. Bonnerberger was another one of these guys. And my father got in touch with Bonnerberger and became his agent for Poland. Bonnerberger had no idea that my father was a Jew. He liked my father. He thought my father was a smart guy. He was impressed with my father's aristocratic lineage, nobility. And they became buddies, fast friends. And here, I, I must say, my father had a touch of genius to him. He realized that with a name like Zamoyski, there was no way that he could simply hide in some closet or in some hole in the wall that he could not hide by being as obscure as possible. That the best way to hide was to be as visible as possible to hide in plain sight. However, not to hide in plain sight in the Polish areas of Krakow, but in the German areas of Krakow. Because in the Polish areas of Krakow, the Poles, who would, would understand that these people cannot be Zamoyski, they would become suspicious. And they would recognize that they're Jews. No, no, it's not at all. It's not sure. That, we, that, that they would have betrayed us, but possibly somebody might have betrayed us. It was much more dangerous to be in the Polish areas of Krakow than in the German areas of Krakow. And he convinced Bonneberger to buy him an apartment in the German area of Krakow, which is what Bonneberger did. And we moved to this apartment in the German area of Krakow. Next door to us lived a Gestapo officer by the name of Colonel Crook, K-R-U-K. And this is, this is the scene. One morning, soon after we had moved in, Nina, that was my mother, and I were finishing breakfast. Bobby was playing on the floor, and the maid was cleaning up in the kitchen. Suddenly, there was a loud banging on the door. Nina, who was the closest, opened it and in marched the Gestapo officer. He wore a black uniform and a cap with a death-head insignia. What the hell, I said, but he ignored me completely. I'm Colonel Crook, your next-door neighbor, he said to Nina in German. Starting tomorrow, you're going to clean my place. The first thing that needs to be done are the floors and the windows. My wife is coming in a week. I want the place to be spotless. I felt the blood drain from my face. I was trembling. I was so mad. Colonel Crook, I said, I'm Count Zamoyski. My wife is not a maid, and she's not going to be her servant. You will be civil the next time you speak to her. Is that understood? Crook turned to me dumbfounded. What did you just say? 
What tone are you using with me? Just as you hear it, I said coldly. He turned on his heels and left, slamming the door behind him. Jan, you're totally insane, Nina said trembling. We've got to fix the situation. Even in private, for four years, my parents referred to each other as Jan and Janina, not as Willie and Natalia, and didn't call me by my name of Silvio, that I was born Silvio Mendelssohn, but referred to me as Boguslav or Bobby. So even in private, the privacy of their home. She was right, of course, but, but I couldn't act Count Zamoyski one minute and then behave like a frightened little man the next. But, but I'm no fool. That evening when we heard Crook come back, I grabbed a bottle of cognac and banged loudly on his door. When he appeared wearing jodhpurs and an undershirt over his scrawny chest, I waved the bottle of cognac in front of him and invited myself in. Crook mumbled something like, come in. That evening, Nina and I sat with him, toasting each other and going through the bottle. After that, we became great friends. Crook used to drop by our place every evening after, quote, work. His mission, plain and simple, was to murder Jews. He'd brag, today I got rid of 20 Jews. Tomorrow, I'm going to hang another batch. Often he'd come in late at night, early in the morning, when Bobby was still awake. Crook especially liked to play with a child. He said that Bobby reminded him of his own little boy whom he had left in Hamburg. He bounced Bobby on his knees and let him play with his Gestapo cap. The child would put on Crook's huge, Crook's huge cap over his little head so that his face and ears would disappear. And then he marched around the room giving the high Hitler salute, like a little, little Gestapo midget. Crook found it all very amusing. One day he asked Nina if it would be okay to bring some of his colleagues to dinner. What to do? The guy is our neighbor, the Gestapo officer. I said, yeah, of course, with pleasure. A few days later, the maid and Nina prepared a feast. That night, as Crook and his cronies were sitting around the dinner table, most of their conversation was about killing Jews. They were all bragging about it. This one had 130 people that day. The other had 100 shot. A third drowned a whole crowd of Jews. That was the main theme of the evening. Meanwhile, eating, drinking, laughing. Nina had made a Hungarian goulash. They loved her and her cooking. We couldn't get rid of them. They were happy and contented, just the kind of people you'd see in a Munich beer hall. When they saw me bring in the cognac after dinner, they cheered and clapped. Nina and I were a big hit, and so was Bobby. They were normal, ordinary Germans having a great time. When they left, Nina and I avoided looking at each other. That night we went to bed without saying a word. In this memoir, I've also tried to interpolate some of, some of my own childhood memories. And one childhood memory, I, I do have a childhood memory of Crook. And this is my memory, which I'm going to comment on later when we talk about the motives of, Cap, of Colonel Crook and Captain Shukri. And I won't read it, I'll just tell you the story. The story is this, that I used to play in the back where there was a construction site. And there were, uh, at this construction site, there were all sorts of uh, uh, ladders and planks leading all over holes dug in the ground and so on. 
And some of the kids from the neighborhood used to balance ourselves on these, on, on these planks. One of the games we, we, we played, I remember playing, was King of the Mountain. It was a large pile of dirt. And then we climb up on the top of the dirt and we push each other off the pile of dirt. And the kid who was on top was killed king of the mountain until the next kid came and pushed him off and he was king of the mountain. That's, that's, that was the game. So one day I am king of the mountain, which was a big surprise to me because I was the smallest kid there. And some of the older kids must have forgotten that I was there and just left me alone and I was king of the mountain. Uh, but while I'm, while I'm king of the mountain, another kid, another Polish kid comes up and he climbs and his name, his name was Vladek. And he comes up and tries to push me off. Before he can reach the top, I pushed him. And he rolled down and scratched, got scratched up and hurt and angry, crying. And he said, I'm going to get you for this. So I climbed down the hill. And Vlad, I didn't realize Vladek was waiting for me. And he, did, he was waiting for me. And he had a rock in his hand. And when I came down the hill, he took the rock and he threw it at my head. And I just had a moment to turn my head, and it hit me on the side of the head. I started getting blood all over my face and my eyes, and I ran home. So I'm running home, my mother opens the door, and she's terrified. She puts me to bed, and she doesn't know what to do. And without thinking, apparently, she goes next door to get, to get Colonel Crook's help. She knocks on his door, and he comes out wearing his undershirt, and he was fond of me. He looks me over and he says, I'm going to kill this. Who, who did this to you? And I said, Vladek, I'm going to kill him. And he goes to get his revolver and he loads his revolver and he's about to go downstairs to kill this boy. And my mother realizes, my God, this guy is going to kill this child. So she stops him and says, no, no, it's, it's okay. He'll be okay. So she mollifies Crook, and he goes back, and I survive, and I'm still here, and that's, that's fine. But I want you to remember that story, because it stayed with me, and I'll, I'll, I'll want to comment on it a little later. So, we have these two examples of Bishop Malakin and Colonel Cook. And so let me comment, make a few comments about, about these two experiences, these two men. Moving from the particular to the general, what do the, what do, do the two memoirs illustrate about the motives of killers like Captain Shukri and Colonel Cook and the survival of Bishop Malakin and my father? I'll start with the two killers and then turn to the two survivors. I don't know why Captain Shukri and Colonel Crook became killers in wartime. They might both have been fanatics, viewing mass murder as desirable and justified by the ideologies of Turkish nationalism on the one hand and by Nazi racism on the other. There were such killers among the young Turks and the Nazis. But that would be too easy an explanation. The more difficult task is to, is to explain the role of the ordinary men and women who are not fanatics, not motivated by political religion, but who are arrested, guarded, tortured, 
and executed their victims with the same effectiveness and lack of remorse as did the two believers. It is likely that neither Captain Chukri nor Colonel Crook killed people out of personal choice or decision. They were both part of military or quasi-military formations, and the decisions to kill Armenians or Jews had come from elsewhere, from their higher-ups. Their motives were not necessarily rooted in ideology or belief. They might not might even have been rooted in the hatred of their victims. Had they been asked why they killed people, they likely would have said that they were merely following orders in wartime. Indeed, Captain Shukri said as much to Bishop Alakin. These thoughts echo the famous study, Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101, and the Final Solution in Poland, in which Christopher Browning found that ordinary, non-ideological German policemen who had been drafted into the Holocaust were just as effective in their murderous duties as were, as were the devoted killers in the SS. I believe uh, Dr. Johnson, you've, you've used that book in your own classes. Obedience to an authority that the men regarded as legitimate, that is the Nazi state, with Hitler as its Fuhrer, and peer pressure were better explanations for the motivations of the ordinary policemen that participated in the final solution were not, that then were Nazi beliefs or racial hatred. Indeed, Colonel Krug was himself a high-ranking German policeman. The Gestapo was a, was a police uh, uh, unit. We need to further examine the notion of legitimate authority, because Shukri's and Krug's moral responsibility rested on who they chose to obey. Had they originally not chosen to support the regimes, they would have run risks and foregone opportunities of personal advancement, but likely they would not have become mass murderers. It was their, their original choices to support murderous regimes that compromised them and led them on the path to genocide. Here, let me digress. The Browning study was itself influenced by an earlier study into obedience to authority conducted by the psychologist Stanley Milgram at Yale University between 1960 and 1963. In that study, Milgram demonstrated that human subjects were likely to obey a person in authority to an extraordinary degree, as long as they viewed him as having moral authority over them. For example, the subjects obeyed Professor Milgram, whom they viewed as a legitimate, well-meaning scientist, when he ordered them to administer painful shocks electric shocks to an innocent person in a supposed learning experiment at Yale. They were told that, in effect, the more they administered the shocks, the more likely was the person able to learn. The experiment was designed such that no, such that no one was really hurt, of course. But the subjects who were administering the shocks did not know that. They thought they really were hurting somebody on Milton's order. What they did know is that an established psychologist at a prestigious university was urging them to hurt someone, presumably, for the greater good of scientific discovery. It was at this point they should have refused to go on with the experiment. Once they began to participate, it was too late. They were not happy with their task, and they protested to Milgram, some of them strenuously, even as they continued to administer shocks electric shots to an innocent person. 
crucial variation of that experiment was to replace Professor Milgram with someone who did not claim to have scientific authority. At that point, the subjects desisted. They would not obey just anyone. They would not obey an illegitimate authority. Presumably, neither Shukri nor Crook would have killed anyone had they been asked to do so by some random, random civilian authority, a school, a sports club, or a hospital, for instance. They obeyed their political and military, military leaders in wartime who they judged to have legitimate authority over them. But that brings up another question. Why did Shukri and Krupp choose to give, give their fealty to murderous leaders like the Young Turks and, and Hitler and Himmler in the first place? For Shukri and other Turks, the military defeats of the Balkan Wars of 1908-1912 and the fear that the Ottoman state could disintegrate was a source of support for a powerful and militarized Turkey. That fear was directed at the European powers, but also against minorities like Armenians and Greeks, who were accused of having secessionist aspirations. For many Germans, like Krook, Hitler's charisma and his promise to undo the humiliation of Germany's defeat in World War I was a major source of Nazi support. So were the economic crises of the 1920s and 30s that undermined the democratic Weimar Republic and allowed the Nazis to surge to power in 1932. Most likely solidarity with their leaders in wartime played a crucial role for both men. Their country was at war and they were asked to join up to obey orders, and so they did. Once they started on the path of obedience, they wound up at the destination of mass murder. Research on genocide suggests that we are much less autonomous than we flatter ourselves. Our actions do not depend on our values and motives on ourselves alone. They depend even more on the hierarchies of authority in which we find ourselves and in the networks of other people in which we are embedded. If our leaders, friends, co-workers, and comrades in the army or police bring pressure on us, we are likely to succumb and to do things that under other circumstances might horrify us. We are likely... Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Does that mean that we are sentenced to being cruel killers under certain circumstances? Much depends on what we consider legitimate authorities. The moral of the story, especially in a democracy, seems to be choose your leaders wisely. If you had supported the Young Turks in 1914, or voted for Hitler in 1932, despite the fact that each regime was warlike and xenophobic, don't be surprised that you were killing Armenians in 1915 and Jews in 1942. There are two further observations we might make about Shukri and Crook. First, Shukri relied on religious authority as well as state authority to justify his actions, and neither man seemed morally torn by his murderous acts. Both men seemed to be proud of their actions. It is striking and depressing that neither in the Armenian Genocide nor in the Holocaust did major religious organizations, whether Muslim or Christian, speak out clearly against genocide. Indeed, in some not notable instances, Muslim and Christian religious authorities condoned mass murder. Had they had the moral courage of their own teachings to confront political evil with their own authority, they might have saved many lives. 
There was something else, too, that has stayed with me. Crook had started out as a chauffeur to a nobleman in Hamburg, but by the time he got to Poland and donned his Gestapo uniform, he was a terrifying dispenser of life and death. He could exercise his powers of impunity in the most trivial situations. He didn't hesitate to go after Vladek, the little Polish kid who had thrown a rock at me. If not for my mother, he might have killed the boy with impunity. Crook may have started out as an ordinary German policeman doing his duty by killing Jews and others in wartime, but he wound up as a genuine serial killer, deriving great psychic satisfaction in his crimes. That kind of immense, godlike power over the lives of people must have seemed intoxicating for Crook, an ordinary man from Hamburg, and all the other ordinary men who felt ten feet tall as they murdered unarmed men, women, and children. What about the survivors, Bishop Balakian and Willie Mendelssohn? They couldn't have been more different. Bishop Balakian was a highly regarded figure in the Armenian Apostolic Church. He was a deeply religious Christian and an Armenian patriot. Willie Mendelssohn, before, during, and after the war, was a scrappy entrepreneur who lived by his wits. He was Jewish by ethnicity and culture, but he was neither religious nor particularly Zionist. However, both were clever, ingenious, and even crafty. Both spoke fluent German, skill that was crucial, crucial to their survival. Both were young, courageous, and energetic, energetic, and ha had an extraordinary zest for life. Bishop Balakin was single and therefore unencumbered with having to save a family in addition to himself. My father had the responsibility to rescue my mother and me, my uncle, and three other Jewish women who lived in hiding with us. Of course, my mother was, was not just a burden, and had played a crucial role in our rescue. After all, it was she who was able to acquire the false papers of identity that ultimately saved our lives. Nevertheless, it is the case that many young, vigorous, German-speaking Jews, Armenians, who died in both genocides, died so because they were unwilling to abandon families that depended on them. I don't know what Bishop Olekin would have said should someone have asked him why he survived, but I suspect that he would have answered something like my father and mother did. I was very lucky, and some good people risked their lives that I might live. Bishop Olekin would likely also have added that God had watched over him, a sentiment that my mother shared, but my father certainly did not. I've already referred to Bishop Belakin's gratitude to the many people, including Armenians, Germans, and even Turks, who had saved his life. As far as Mendelssohn's or Melson's are concerned, the name of Hela stands out. She was a Ukrainian peasant girl who had been my governess in Stanislav before and during the German occupation. I remember her as short and plump. She wore long peasant skirts and secured the, ma her, the mass of her beautiful auburn herb hair with bobby pins that I tried to pull out as she carried me in her arms. After the massacre that I referred to earlier, the Jews in Stanislav, massacre of October 12, 1941, we hid out with her in a simple peasant hut and she sheltered us from the killers. She knew perfectly well that the penalty for hiding Jews was death. Some of her Ukrainian friends were not sorry to see the Jews exterminated and voiced their suspicions about the middle-class family staying with her. 
But she never flinched and never asked us to leave. She was what Jewish survivors call, quote, a righteous Gentile. At Yad Vashem, the memorial to the Holocaust in Israel, such people are honored by having a tree planted in their name, give them a medal, and, and a subvention. However, we did not even know her, her last name. Perhaps she didn't have one. She was just Hella, a peasant girl who had been hired to take care of me and saved our lives. If ordinary people can become killers because of the, hier of the hierarchies and murderous networks in which they are embedded, perhaps under other circumstances, led by others and, sur and surrounded by others, some of us can become rescuers and resist murderous orders. Of course, there always are extraordinary people like Hella who don't rely on distant authorities or networks of supporters to do the right thing. They follow their heart, but they are rare, isolated, and often in danger. Thank you. Were there any close calls, like 
where you almost got discovered? Many, many close calls. Uh, we, from the foolish to the more serious. And one of the foolish ones was, actually uh, as an example, in that same chapter, my father talks about Crook. Uh, we're, we're living at Samoyskis. And one day the bell rings and a member of the family comes. The real Samoyski. He's heard there are Samoyskis living in this apartment. And how are you? And, and have you heard of Cousin Mabel and so on? And my, parent, and my father's trying to, to keep a straight face. And as he said, I gave him some money and he left and he never came back. And the same guy could have easily have gone then to the police and it would have been over. Maybe he was afraid to go to the police. Who knows? I guess another, another, uh, another example is my mother went to a hairdresser. And she's sitting in a, in, a, in a chair getting her hair done. And she looks over. And there is a Polish girlfriend from her school, from the Conservatory of Music that she went to in Warsaw. And this girlfriend turns to her and she says to her, Natalie, how are you? And my mother's not Natalie now. My mother's Nina Zamoyski. She's not Natalie Ponchek. And my mother looked up, took off the towels and saw them walk straight out. Constantly. At the end, towards the end of the war, my father, in fact, was arrested by the Gestapo. And uh, he was badly treated, but he survived. And he came out alive. Yes? That's a very, very good question, very perceptive question. My parents wouldn't let me go to school um, because they couldn't take a chance that I would say something that might give them away. But I was young enough to have governesses, so I had governesses. Uh, one of them was a deeply religious Catholic lady who tried to turn me into a priest. And, uh, I kept on telling her I wanted to be a pilot, but she didn't think she didn't think that was very funny. Uh, but no, I didn't go to school till after the war, till I was eight. Yes. Um, is genocide really a new phenomenon of the last century? genocide has been around since mankind has been around. Uh, the difference is this, the distinction I make in my own mind between, uh, and others have made too, between what I call modern genocide and pre-modern genocide, is that most genocides up to the 20th century were across the borders of states. There would be a war, there would be an invasion, an empire would come and, and, and destroy a native people. Native Americans or Tasmanians in Australia uh, or uh, some African peoples would be killed and massacred. Uh, the, the, the Taino of, 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 of the Virgin Islands and so on. That's been going on for a long time. The difference, I think, between that and, and, and our own time is that the victims that have 
participants that have been uh, targeted for genocide have just as often been people within the community over which the state ruled. The Jews were not strange barbarians that the Germans went after to kill. They were not the savages of, of Africa as so many imperial genocidaires would, would consider. They were your neighbors. The Armenians had lived in that part of the world longer than the Turks. They were perfectly familiar to everybody. But something happened to the state itself, to the leadership of the state, to the ideology of the leaders, to transform the state into a killing machine of a minority within the state itself. That to me is, is a novel phenomenon. And it's all around us. It's all around us. I mean, it's not just genocide, but ethnic cleansings and, and, and what's happening in Syria. I mean, the people in Syria are Syrians who are being killed today. The people in Libya are Libyans who are being killed. In Sierra Leone, there are Sierra Leoneans. In Nigeria, where I, my wife and I spent some time, it was Nigerians who were being killed, not somebody else across, across the Pacific. So something has happened to the state itself in modern times, especially in multi, uh, in culturally plural, plural societies, where some group is identified as a threat to the state, and especially in wartime, when it's decided that this group is somehow linked to the enemies of the state, to the external enemies of the state, such groups are in great danger of genocide. Uh, is there a magic bullet or pill that can prevent it? I don't know, but uh, there are period people who thought about it a lot. In fact, there's a, there is a, uh, there is a journal called Genocide Studies and Prevention. The word prevention is in the title of the journal. I certainly haven't found anything to stop it. Uh, there are international bodies, international courts. Uh, there is a, uh, a human consciousness, uh, I think, spreading around the world, uh, that uh, people finally realize this is a threat to everybody, including to, our, to ourselves, and it, it needs to be stopped. In fact, a lecture like that is an attempt to spread this human consciousness. In fact, the Able, what is the ABLE series is not an attempt to continue to, to promote this human consciousness. But outside of that, I really don't know that there is a magic pill to, to stop that. Um, yes. In regards to the question, or sorry, in regards to the story of Kruk and the Polish boy who threw the rock, um, do you think that if it wasn't your mother who was protesting against that potential violence and it was a higher ranking commanding officer of Prague that you would have been more apt to question his day-to-day -day test or do you think you would take a repeated questioning from an authoritative source for him to question the violence that he was doing, if that makes sense? I'm not sure I understand the question. Because <laughs> I found it interesting as well that your mother was able to stop him from being yes. violent to the right. little boy. And I'm wondering if it would have come from a more authoritative source, of like a higher ranking officer, to stop him from the little boy if he would have started questioning, well, if I'm not going to harm this little boy, then maybe what all, all the other things I'm doing day to day are wrong as well. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, what, what, what you're saying is my mother stopped Colonel Crook from 
killing this little Polish kid. And what you're saying is, had someone else who was above him, an authority, had, had stopped him from doing so, would that have led him to question the whole enterprise of Nazi uh, uh, domination over Poland, to, and not only over Jews, but over Poles? I think that's a very insightful thing to say. Uh, maybe, and maybe that's, maybe that's why the authorities would not do that, and would allow this, this kind of action to go on. Um, you know, atrocities occur in every war. As we know, there are atrocities that have been committed by American troops in Iraq recently. And uh, they do occur in every war. Uh, the difference between that kind of atrocity and genocide is that atrocities by the American military or other, other militaries of democratic states are against the rules of the military. In the Nazi case, and in the, the Turkish case, atrocity was the rule. That was the policy. It was not against the rule. That's what you were supposed to do. And that's a huge difference. People do go berserk once in a while. Uh, groups of young men with, with weapons sometimes go out, go out and shoot lots of people for no good reason. But that is not policy of genocide, that is something that was
time has passed, memories have taken over, and so on. And so that's one of the reasons the Armenian Genocide has been less well known. But the other reason is, whenever a, a government authority, or even a private authority, or even scholars get up and talk about the Armenian Genocide, the Turkish state and its representatives make sure to try to hush it up. There's actually political pressure to do that. I'll give you an example. I was at a conference at Oxford University in 1988. We had a, uh, we had a round table about genocide, including the Armenian Genocide, the Holocaust, and so on and so on. And as the, the, the convener of the conference was called by the Turkish embassy, and he was told, you know, you, you have someone speaking about the Armenian Genocide. This is an anti-Turkish move. And there will be consequences for the British government if this continues, if this goes on. Now, the convener of the conference was, uh, was uh, Yehuda Bauer, an Israeli friend, historian, and he, he kind of stared them down. He said, this is not going to be a conference. It's not a political conference. We're going to go ahead with it. But there are two things. First of all, they were so concerned about an academic conference that they wanted to stop it because the Armenian Genocide was, was going to be discussed. Second of all, they sent a representative from the Turkish ministry to get up and make a speech about this provocation thesis, the Armenians provoked the genocide and so on. But he was surrounded by people, I must say like me and others who knew something about it, and he was very quickly silenced and he, it was absurd. Of course, there was an Armenian Genocide, and probably the best sources for what we know about the Armenian Genocide is the U.S. State Department uh, files, because the, the United States did not get into the war until 1917, to the First World War. And the ambassador at the time, uh, Henry Morgenthau, witnessed the Armenian Genocide and reported back to the State Department about the Armenian, about the Armenian Genocide and went to speak to the leaders of the Young Turks, pleading, what are you doing? Uh, you should stop this, this is terrible. And they said, essentially, mind your business. So, but he then wrote a book about it, about it and the book, and there are files, and, they, and they're not only files in the, in, in, in the American uh, uh, archives, they're in the Austrian archives, the German archives, and the French archives, the Italian archives. And finally, there were trials in Turkey itself right after the war by the Turkish authorities who came after the Young Turks, of the Young Turks, who sentenced them to death. Unfortunately, uh, most of them escaped. Uh, one of the leaders was assassinated by an Armenian in France, uh, I'm sorry, in Berlin, and, and, uh, but most of the others managed to escape. Sorry. That's fine. I'm sorry I went over time.